This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Taking care of business every day. Taking care of business every week. General Electric taking care of a lot of business, uh, or at least... A lot of investors and analysts expected them to. It is certainly a new day, or is it, for General Electric? Stocks tanking as the company cuts its dividend. Talking about a new day uh, for General Electric and really a restructuring. Karen Eubelhart is our industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts. She was at the GE shareholders meeting uh, earlier today. She joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Great to have you back with us. This is kind of an ongoing story, uh, General Electric. Take us back to the meeting today. Remind us who was there and what the mood was like. Uh, it was a room full of investors um, and sell-side analysts. Uh, people came in hoping for significant uh, redirection, asset sales. The dividend cut was kind of expected. Right. I don't know if the people expected it 50%, but it was certainly expected. But uh, we already got a pre-alert uh, um, from the CEO that they would do $20 billion in asset sales. That's not enough. And people went in there, it better be more. And it basically was $20 billion. I mean, this is a $164 billion market cap company that sells about $120 billion. So you got to have a bigger bite. Yes. To make, you know, to, they want to change the culture. They want to simplify the company. But basically what they did was fold two electrical-related businesses into power. That, you know, that made, what, three three is now one. And then they're going to keep healthcare and aerospace and sell little bits and pieces and uh, the transportation business. Baker Hughes eventually. Uh, but then they also, two of the three businesses that they announced, we already know they were selling. One one is sold. So. Well, you know what? I had an old boss uh, uh, who I mentioned earlier on the show last week, Gil Rogan, who passed away last week, a big obituary in the New York Times this weekend. Um, and Gil used to get really mad at me when I'd show up with some raw copy that would have a number that ended with lots of zeros, like $20 billion. <laughs> They'd say, that number's fake. There's no way that number's real. It, it, it's too it, perfect. By yeah. very definition, it's too perfect. The odds yeah. of landing on something with to- all zeros is so unlikely. Uh, you, you wouldn't expect to ever see it in real life. There's something, there's more to the story there. So go find the real number. $20 billion is not the real number, right? Yeah. It, it's either it's a goal, it's an over, it's an under, it's, it's, a, it's, to, it's something to put on a sign but not something to actually do. What does that tell us about the state of this? Have they not even figured out what they're going to sell or what the market might be for these things? I think it's phase one. I think they're trying to keep their big core businesses and in a way saying the same thing. We're GE. We're going we're gonna to run them better. We're going to be more serious about cutting costs. We're going to, you know, but um, we don't really have to make the big changes. And but, I'm not sure that's true. But Karen, it's not just about cost-cutting. It's about what's the future direction of General Electric? What are the businesses it should be so that it's around for another 125 years? And unfortunately, their biggest business power, you know, has is in secular decline, and they admitted they missed the move. I mean, it's been difficult for a while, uh, but they have to cut a lot, you know, a lot of plants, a lot of they, people. Wait, they missed what business. move? They missed the move towards uh, towards um uh, well renewables and, and smaller power. You know, they they sell the huge turbines. It's it's their um, smaller power, more distributive power. Um, you know, the big mega turbines are used, you know, in the it's a replacement business in, in mature markets like the U.S. and Europe. The newer markets, they're not selling those mega 
turbines um, and renewables. So are big growing. turbines, not they're not making the stuff that goes. Aren't they making some of the things that go into windmills? Oh no, they no? have a broad yeah, they have a broad um, offering, and they are in renewables, and they will keep that business. But it's small, and it does not make that much money. It makes you know single digit margins. So Karen, when you dig de- deep into this company and you look at the businesses it has, and you see where the growth is and where it isn't, what kind of company should it be going forward in your view? Um, I Well, the aerospace business is a good business. Um, the healthcare business is actually not a bad business. People don't like it because it's not industrial, but it's actually a pretty pretty good business. And we all need um, healthcare. We're going to yeah. need more of it going forward. And that's part of the secular story is definitely there. Uh, you know, power, they run a third of the, they say, we're world's electricity. They drive. I mean, if they could make that a smaller business, it's 64% aftermarket parts. So the margins could be good if they could get it sized to the market. Um, and then the credit sub should be a good business if they keep it focused on the three businesses, w- which they will. Is there somewhere they should be uh, that they're not? Hmm. Is there somewhere they should be? Um, that's a good question. I mean, well, they Baker talk- Hughes is an interesting thing to be in here. I mean, it, it, you know, they spent a lot of money to acquire oh, Baker Hughes yeah. uh, just so recently, as even as they're trying to look at spinoffs. Um, you know, they, the, the, the negative of that business is the market fundamentals are just really difficult in that business and, and, and change from, you know, based on sort of what product offering and, and how recently you've got that sale, sale done. Yeah. And then there's a commodity volatility attached to that that they can't really control. And they cited that as, I mean, people thought the way they structured that deal where it's a public company and they just own two-thirds of it, it's actually not part of GE anymore. It's mm-hmm. totally right. arm's length that eventually that would go. The timing isn't great for it to go now. And no. they and they say we have optionality in Baker Hughes. They're going to wind it down at some point, but they can't now. They've talked uh, about being... Because of, sorry, because of the low, low gas prices yes. and low oil deck, which yes. is not all that low right now, but yeah. Yeah, they're but not making enough money in it. You know, they need the rebound. They Bloomberg Business Week did a story about GE wanting to be kind of the internet of big things and kind of, you know, controlling the processes and factories and so on and so forth. We got about 30 seconds, Karen. Is that an area that could be smart for them going forward? Uh, th- that is the direction that uh, all of industrials are going. Um, it's unclear what model is going to work. And in fact, they had to downsize that um, those uh, ambitions as well. They're going to stick to just digital that goes into the businesses that they're in. Um, I think it could be a decent business eventually, but they haven't really figured out how to make you know money in it yet. <laughs> John Flannery, is he the guy, the CEO? Is he the guy to make the changes, the necessary changes? Uh, the thing that's difficult is I think he is a different GE um, manager. He is, you know, more um, aggressive doer, you know, but he does have 30 years at the company. Yeah, sometimes you need an outsider to make a change. Big one. Karen Eubelhart, always love your analysis. Industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She was at that GE meeting earlier today in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Because you're the key. Yeah, I want uh, keys to all of my kingdoms at home, if I'm traveling. I mean, how many times have you lost a hotel key or it just didn't work when you went to open your door? Well, this next guest and his company addressing all of those things. TJ Person is founder and CEO at Open Key, based in Dallas, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York on this Monday. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about, or tell our audience a little bit about what you do. So OpenKey is a technology platform that allows hotels to uh, deliver mobile keys. What that means is guests uh, don't have to wait in line to check in. Uh, They can scan their ID before they get uh, to the hotel through their mobile uh, phone. 
And then the hotel gives them a, a mobile key so they don't have to wait in line and uh, they get the key directly to their room. In some ways, it's a lot like, you know, getting your, your um, boarding pass on your phone and checking in, picking your meal, doing whatever. To exactly. some extent. Yeah. It, it is. And it's really it's changing the whole way hotels are thinking about design in the hotels. So, you know, there, the front desk used to be really front and center in every hotel, and now they're really thinking, okay, let's de-emphasize the front desk since we have this new technology. It's interesting. I mean, it, this could go one of two ways, right? It could go to, towards a way of, of focusing on the hospitality aspect of running a hotel, right, of, of making the consumer have a better experience and um, taking care of their actual needs. On the other hand, it could go towards, I mean, I, Carol, I can't remember the name of the hotel we stayed at in Chicago when we were there for was it a year ago, okay. and a half ago? Yeah. Um, and it was just a machine. They had so many people coming oh. in and out of the place and huge long lines. It was like checking into the airport. <laughs> and I could see them going to a kiosk just to make the thing even more impersonal. Yeah, I, I actually see it you know, as kind of an evolution of hospitality. I think the front desk really takes away the hospitality end of the hotel uh, because you know, it's, it's very transactional. Uh, you don't have to stop. I have to give you my ID, and I have to do all these right. things that really, in today's age, seem kind of silly. So what we're seeing is hotels starting to like bring the life back to the hotel. You know, welcome to the city. Let me tell you about what's going on. Really, you know, add hospitality back to that experience. Um, isn't there who's the? Um, oh, I'm trying to think. The big hotel guy, I think, who's creating a hotel where like there's going to be like no people around or something. I yeah, wonder if this place is a trend. Trend. I mean, a trend. Is it Ian Schrager? I, yeah. Well, probably. you know, I stayed I stayed at a place down on Howard Street last summer in, in Manhattan that where the front desk was just like a couple people standing around a little cocktail table. And they had something like a laptop or an iPad or something. That was kind of the check-in process. They wanted to make it informal, but they still had to go through some of the same things. Yeah, you know, we're, we're seeing like uh, we're in a large resort chain in now in Mexico. And the challenge there is, you know, guests get there. They get there in the morning. The room's not ready. And then they have to kind of go back to the front desk. And they want to go and enjoy their vacation. So this way it's like, you know, take care of the business and then go have fun. And then the mobile key gets there when the room's ready. All right. So we know what you're doing. Tell me about where you are offering your services. What hotels uh, here in the United States, what around the globe? Sure. So we have, um, first off, our, our investors are all um, publicly traded hotel REITs. Uh, so that's given us a huge uh, leg up uh, to, to saturate the market. Right now we're in eight countries. I just got back from uh, Shanghai. We just launched a uh, joint venture in China. So we'd open an office in China. Really? So the much place demand. where labor is the cheapest? <laughs> yes. But um, getting more expensive. But still, I mean, the travel in the hotel industry is absolutely booming right now in Shanghai. And so, um, you know, mobile key is, is just coming there. And there's a huge interest in China right now. How much growth are you guys seeing in top and bottom lines? Um, so we're seeing a 200% growth year over year. I think next year for we'll probably, revenues, earnings, what revenues? Both uh, number of hotels, uh, revenues, uh, earnings. You know, it's still a three-year-old tech startup. This is actually my fourth tech startup. So you know, right now we're just trying to. It's a huge market. We're trying to go after that. Earnings uh, is less concerned. More focused on revenue and, and just traction. Um, what's the biggest? Oh, sorry, Carol. What, oh, what I'm curious about though is security with all of this. Yep. Okay, because as we become increasingly (laughs) digital. Yes, when I'm in my room, I can throw the extra bolt so nobody can just come in by mistake. But when I'm not in my room, I can't do that. Right. I don't want to alarm you, but that plastic card that you uh, have in your pocket 
is actually not that secure. So I would say mobile key is much more secure than the plastic Why keys though? today. Can't somebody well, hack into it and open up a bunch of doors? Oh, the problem is the key doesn't know who you are. So your phone has things like fingerprint, it has face detection, it has passwords, things that can actually lock it down to you. The phone is yours. The key, you know, could be scanned, could be copied. Uh, there's a lot of different things around that. And then technology-wise, uh, it's bank-level security at the hotel. And, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of effort into making it, you know, as secure as possible. Um, what's the biggest obstacle to getting a hotel to uh, ad- adopt this technology? Surely the changeover cost is expensive. Yeah, so, you know, that, that is one challenge for hotels. They have to upgrade their hardware uh, to Bluetooth locks, which is the latest hardware. Uh, although OpenKey does subsidize that cost, and that's part of the reason why we become – I think the you know the leading mobile key provider in the world is we subsidize that cost so they don't have to front the whole cost of that upgrade. Going to go public? Uh, that's uh, that's uh, the goal down the road. Uh, I think it's a huge market and it's a it's a fun space. There's a lot of interest in it right now. Competition though, a little bit, right? Well, just got about 15 seconds. Yeah, there's definitely competition, yeah. um, but you know I think our model is unique, and the big brands that are doing it are, are are also helping to drive our our sales. Pretty cool stuff. Um, let us know how things are going. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk with you, TJ Person. He is the founder and chief executive officer at OpenKey, based in Dallas, but uh, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York City. Well, is Qualcomm breaking the heart? Broadcom, and, uh, the, the man who runs the company. Uh, Anand Srinivasan joins us right now from Bloomberg Intelligence, an expert on the matters of the heart. And Ian King, much love there, too. He's our U.S. Semiconductor reporter and joins me here in our 960 studios in San Francisco. Ian, what's uh, the, the news of this? I guess we ex- might have expected that uh, they were going to reject this offer. Yeah, we reported this, that this was coming about a week or so ago, and, and today got confirmed. They just said, look, this is kind of too low. This doesn't value us appropriately. And anyway, there'd be a lot of regulatory issues with getting this deal closed. Is this about Qualcomm, uh, Ian, playing hard to get? Um, not, we don't think so. I mean, did some reporting over, over the weekend, spoke to um, some Broadcom backers here, notably Silver Lake. And really, what you've got is a fundamental difference in belief in how a semiconductor industry company should be run. Broadcom thinks things have changed, the industry has slowed down, it's time to stop spending money here, there and everywhere and trying to get into new markets, it's time to sort of double down on what you're good at. Qualcomm is still in that kind of old school semiconductor spend, spend, we're going to get into new markets, we're going to take our core mm. competence and take over the world. Anand Srinivasan, come in, you follow this space um, for our Bloomberg Intelligence team. So where do you see this going? Look, I think there's merit on both sides of the argument. On one hand, if you look at Qualcomm, uh, they own the handset market um, from an intelligence perspective, the most logic-oriented, the most uh, interesting chips are in that space, that said, they haven't been able to diversify out of that market and their pending NXP acquisition to some degree is is uh, the notion that, okay, we need uh, a completely different market than handsets and they're going after the auto market. On the other hand, if you look at what Hock Tan has done, he has rolled up and he has created a monster. The uh, head of Broadcom. The CEO. head of Broadcom. Yeah. Uh, he has created the first combination of um, Avago Broadcom that has created a behemoth that owns the wired networking space, owns um, a lot of the handset space, um, very light in industrials and, and auto. So if you put the combination together, we get 
why he's going after the uh, after the business. And it comes as an interesting pain point for Qualcomm in that, you know, when we had the transition from 3G to 4G, 4G came up really quick after 3G, so you had this wave of new technology and dramatic improvements in the phone that not only propelled prices, and it also brought a lot of interesting consumer technology to the mix. If you look at the lull now, we mm. have 4G somewhat maturing, and 5G is in there to advance or, or um, uh, perceptibly advance uh, technology. So there's that gap, and you're getting pinched in that gap. Qualcomm's getting pinched in that gap, and the whole Apple litigation is, is another issue. I was just going to say, uh, Ian, you know, come on in on that. I mean, that Apple litigation where they're really pushing back big time uh, and seemingly or allegations that they're getting others like Samsung on board with that too. Um, how does that play into this? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly the point here is that, it, it, you know, if you're going to try and buy Qualcomm, now the is the time, right? They couldn't, I mean, they're surrounded on all sides by these legal uh, attacks, these regulatory attacks. Look at where the stock price is. Look at what it's done to their earnings this year. So if, you, if you're going to go after their shareholder base, which, you know, Broadcom confirmed that they're going to do, they'd like to do it friendly, but we're going to go, th this is the time you do it, you know. And, and obviously Apple is the biggest uh, thorn in the side of Qualcomm. Uh, Ian, let me, you guys have a profile out today about uh, a Hawk Tan, this really interesting character uh, who runs uh, Avago Broadcom, Broadcom, ticker to formerly Avago. What, uh, what's he like? Uh, he's quite a character. I mean, first of all, he very rarely does any press at all. This time now, he, you know, he's come around, he's actually started doing interviews, starting to talk to people. But ev according to everybody we talked to, he he's couldn't be more practical. He couldn't be more focused on the bottom line. He has a, a you know, a, an opinion about where things are going, which is at odds with most of the rest of the industry. But let's face it, he, he's delivered on the bottom line. Um, massive shareholder returns. He improves the operations of every company he takes over. No messing around. Straight to the point. Does a lot of things himself. But could he not do this deal, Anon, unless he moved the headquarters back to the United States? Where does that fit into it? Because well, I, I feel like it's been interesting all of a sudden, all this stuff coming out of Broadcom. So I think that had more to do with uh, brocade, potentially. Well, now if he makes a bid for, uh, having put in a bid for Qualcomm, and Qualcomm, a Singaporean, any non-U.S. entity trying to buy Qualcomm would just not have been passed through via CFIA. So the fact that he's done through eases both the brocade transaction and this transaction. You know, but to add to Ian's point about Hock Tan, one of the things that the semiconductor industry has lacked is that, oh, this markets are huge and we'll continue to gain share and we'll be incredibly profitable. Hawk has a very uh, practical, uh, he's very practical-minded about uh, the size of the markets and the the segments he wants to build and the segments he does not want to build. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a potential acquisition that he has envisioned, just he got will get 10 rid seconds. of yeah he will get rid of uh, segments that he doesn't want very very quickly. It's very decisive and we we like him uh, from that perspective. Got it. Anand Srinivasan, senior semiconductor and hardware analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts in our New York studio, along with Ian King, U.S. semiconductor and networking reporter at Bloomberg News, joining Corey in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Dave Wilson joins us now, our stocks editor, with his chart of the day and the who... 
That's right. The who. Actually, no, I mean, I know it's the who. I didn't mean it's the who. I mean, it's the who question mark, not it's the space, lowercase who. You're telling a story, Corey. <laughs> anyway, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. That's sort of what came to mind after I saw this report that uh, looked at this new NYSE FANG Plus stock index. We're all familiar with the FANG stocks now. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google's parent, Alphabet. Well, the folks who run the NYSE over at Intercontinental Exchange, they threw in a few more stocks, created this index. Now you've got futures contracts out. Uh, They started trading last week. And I ran into an analysis from Tom McClellan, who's the editor of the McClellan Market Report, that got my attention. Now, what he did is he compared the performance of this FANG Plus index, because it was calculated back three years to give people sort of a historical reference, uh, even though it's a brand new indicator. He compared that with the performance of an exchange-traded fund that tries to deliver double the daily performance of the NASDAQ 100. Uh, the, the ticker on it's QLD. It's uh, one that uh, is uh, sponsored by ProShares. Mm-hmm. And basically... So it's the NASDAQ 100 on steroids. or it's, it's a, it, Yeah, uh, that's, yeah. that's sort of the, uh, the conclusion, really, that comes out of this. I, I love the comment that uh, McClellan has. So congratulations, ICE. That would be the Intercontinental Exchange. You just invented a futures contract that replicates an already existing leveraged ETF. So, Why is it, this important to point out? Just to, to remind everybody, everybody that this isn't necessarily a new idea? Exactly. New I mean, it, uh, it's a, a way to kind of capitalize on uh, what you might call a fad at this point. There's been so much focus on these FANG stocks over the last couple of years because of the way they perform. Right. And really, what you've got here is just sort of a way to uh, take advantage of of the publicity as much as anything, you know, with an index, which really isn't all that different from what we've seen before. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for your movers and shakers, winners and losers on this Monday, November 13th. Carol Master along with Corey Johnson. Let's kick it off with the S&P 500. 286 names in the index higher today. 217 lower, three unchanged. Corey, I'm going to start with General Electric. Charlie mentioned it, but I think it's worth mentioning again. GE, shares of General Electric, the number one decliner in the S&P 500 today, down more than 7% to $19.02 a share. It's down now 40% so far in 2017. 
interesting big story, holding a, a meeting with investors, shareholders meeting. Uh, they did sh- chop their dividend 50%. They're saying they're now going to do a new focus on power, aviation, and health, chopping it into three businesses, if you will. But uh, Wall Street not impressed. They're waiting to see really kind of what more the new CEO or relatively new CEO is going to be doing uh, at the company. But again, right now, for the moment, he told investors he's going to focus on aviation, power, renewable energy, and healthcare equipment when he unveils his plan for GE, uh, or he did actually today, I should say. So, like I said, investors not too impressed. Well, at least they finished their strategic review. You know what company did not? Um, General Growth Partners, GGP, did a three-month uh, strategic review a while back, but a year ago, uh, or I say all back in May, uh, and got rid of that pro- review process and just said to kind of plow ahead with what it was doing. Investors didn't like it. Brookfield, of course, emerged with a bid. Uh, there's an increasing belief that the Brookfield bid is way low and that that one of two things happens. Either uh, the bid happens at this at this current level, which it's, it's, a, big, it's a big bid. It's a $21.8 billion offer, or that would be the valuation for the whole company. But that, that would value other real estate out there, other mall real estate, uh, at a much lower mark than it is currently valued. So you're either going to see companies, high-end mall operators like Simon Property Group or Macerich, uh, uh, lose a lot of value to get priced closer to uh, Brookfield, or you could see GGP shares rise quite a bit to appreciate closer to the value of its uh, high-end mall competitors. That belief has sent shares of GGP up today 8%. Wow. Again, with an expectation that uh, that uh, the deal from Brookfield is undervalued and that Brookfield is going to have to go higher or someone's going to come in at a higher offer. Uh, GGP shares up 8%. Uh, today were, were the second uh, biggest gainer in the S&P 500. I was reading Bloomberg Daybreak this morning, which for terminal users, they know it's kind of a great rundown of all of the key stories for the day. And this caught my attention among the analyst calls. It's from Morgan Stanley. The analyst is Brian Nowak. And he says, uh, Amazon's core retail valued at $600 billion, Amazon Web Services at $270 billion, and its prime subscriber revenues at $70 billion, and its ad business at $55 billion. You add it all up, and you got a $1 trillion sum of parts bull case on the company. So he says, you know, a $2,000 share value or about $1 trillion bull case in total. Right now, the market cap on Amazon, $544 billion. The stock has had a tremendous run this year, up 51%. It's just up about one-third of one percent in today's session. But nonetheless, uh, the uh, Morgan Stanley analyst, as I said, just breaking down all the parts and what he sees as the value and says, whoa, a $1 trillion sum of all the parts. Just thought it was uh, interesting. Indeed. Uh, Immunogenics uh, was one of the biggest losers on the Russell 2000 today. Uh, second biggest loser. Stock was down uh, 20% or 19.3%, I should say, 19.4% uh, to uh, close at exactly $10 a share. Uh, this company does some diagnostic imaging and therapeutic products uh, to treat cancer and infectious diseases. They announced, um, uh, sort of pre announced some meetings and a bunch of uh, uh, breast cancer um, uh, uh, gatherings and investor conferences as well. The company did present at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, um, uh, and uh, the data that they or, or they're about to, and the data that they're about to present apparently the abstract from that didn't show a lot of progress. And so, between reading between the lines, investors running away from this Morris Plains, New Jersey uh, company that was yeah. hoped to have some more help uh, de- dealing with treatment-resistant metastatic triple negative breast cancer. All right, Corey, let's get to the volatility index report. And the VIX in the Monday session up 1.9%, closing at 11.51. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? 
Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. And that would be KBR, Corey. They were a contractor, maybe best known for their work on behalf of the U.S. military in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there are two things you need to know to understand how the shares perform today. One is that they have become increasingly focused on government business. Uh, They accounted for 60% of revenue last quarter, up from as little as 10% three years ago. The other thing is that they do a whole lot of business in the U.K., It's one of their biggest markets outside the U.S. There are about 25% of the company's assets there. And that U.K. business became an issue today for KBR, whose name is also its ticker, KBR. Here's what happened. U.K. defense contractor Ultra Electronics said this year's revenue will fall short of estimates because of, and here's the key, project delays and cancellations in its home country. So, in other words, the defense business in the U.K. is kind of back on its heels. Now, KBR uh, chief financial officer uh, said just last month that he saw the U.K. as a place for possibly robust growth. So Ultra's outlook kind of contrasted with that view. And what you ended up with today is that shares of KBR fell as much as 12%. They closed with a loss of 7%, which was the biggest for the stock since April. All right. Good to know. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Our Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson with his stock of the day. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.